0: No mai haere mai. You're listening to an Eyes Down More Centre podcast. The Eyes Down More Centre is a national centre for hearing and balance research. Here, we present the Whakarongo Mai podcast series, a series where we share Aotearoa's latest Māori hearing and balance research. Kia ora, ko Iwi, ko Alejandro Tōku Engoa, EMC's Māori Research Coordinator and a Kaupapa Māori researcher in the audiology space. In this episode, host professors Mersham Pele and Hasha Kathar discuss sociosonic hearing healthcare with their special guests in South Africa and Aotearoa, New Zealand. So, stay tuned and whakarongo mai. Listen with not only your taringa, but also your hinengaro, your wairua and your ngākou. Very special panel discussion on
1: sociosonic hearing. I'm sure you're wondering what that's all about, but we're going to begin with Mershin and Pilo taking us through
2: their creative ideas. Um, My name is Mershin Pile, and uh, this talk has been done in aid of the World Hearing Day uh, 2022. And the title of the presentation is Sociosonic Hearing Healthcare. We'll introduce all the people as we go through. uh, But like I said, I'm Mershin Pile. I'm from South Africa, currently based in uh, New Zealand, Massey University, and an audiologist and a speech therapist. Um, so, why sociosonic? sonic? Why, what's this fancy term about? And why is it that we're wanting to talk about this? Here's the main rationale for looking at this. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, we want wanting to challenge the dominant way in which sharing healthcare operates in the world. And in terms of looking at sharing healthcare, this framework is what we're hoping to use to help us think through this. Uh, firstly, we're wanting to look at what the reality or the value base of this uh, dominant way of looking at hearing is. In other words, it's ontological basis. And then we want you to understand well, what are the, the, the basic values of the truths that generate our practice, that generate our policies, and the way we think about here in healthcare. in other words, the epistemological basis. And then finally, we want you to look at the, um, the way in which Uh, we methodologically produce knowledge, how we do our research, how we engage our practices. And so the the methodological features are what we're wanting to look at here. In other words, what's our science about? How do we do this then to develop uh, hearing healthcare knowledge and and practice? Uh, And so firstly, I think what's important is just to to talk a little bit more around these terms. So if you look at the top column, uh, the top row, you've got three predominant categories of three main paradigms that we might consider. The the most the the, uh, the one that we're familiar with is the positivist or empirical paradigm, which mostly, which may be called empirical or analytical as well. Those are other terms for it. And and really, what it looks at is how we can take a whole big phenomenon like hearing and chop it up into to bits, to elements that we can manipulate either in a laboratory setting or in a, in a lab like situation, uh, where we can then make information or the truth known about hearing accessible, uh, available to us. Analyzable and then generalize it to to the population that we want to to understand. Uh, one of the key features, the ontological features features of the science that we use, is that we we insist on objectivity. We say it's possible and it's something that is desirable. In fact, it's valued strongly within a, a positivistic empirical framework. Swap over to the second column, the middle one. Looking at um, all those terms on the top, I'm not going to read them out to you, other than to say that within this so-called constructivist framework, that's the easiest term I'm going to reference. It refers to the fact that because there are as many people in the world as their ideas, multiple truths, multiple realities are all what this paradigm admits into its knowledge and says, when we think that your story of the world and my story of how I hear and my hearing experience are equally valid. And so the, these are multiple truths that need to be acknowledged. It also focuses strongly, it's, it's what I would refer to often as the, the has bandaid or um, plaster solutions where you get a wound, you quickly uh, put a plaster on this and the wound is healed but you don't actually heal the cause of that wound. In other words, it's focused on practical. People who engage this often go, I'm practice-based. I want to do. Tell me what to do. This is how I want. I'm an action person. Don't tell me how to think about it. Tell me what to do. Uh, within this framework, subjectivity is celebrated. It is um, well-acknowledged that, uh, that knowledge is not just inconstant, but you can only make knowledge through each other. That it's iterative. It's joint sense-making go over to the last one. And this is the one I think most of us desire to head to, but uh, many of us are not there. Uh, And this is where we look at everything. All knowledge is contestable. Right down to the most granular level of hearing, it is contestable because knowledge is always socially, politically, culturally, gendered, uh, constructed in all of those different ways. And so it also looks at realities as being multiple. And um, mainly one of the, the core tools it engages is ideology critique. So I know this is a huge uh, snapshot overview. We're going to come back to some of these ideas a bit later, but for right now, these are the key things with the acknowledgement that mainly audiology and or hearing healthcare in general is driven by a need to fulfill positivistic or empirical ideology. So in other words, you're a good hearing healthcare theorist, researcher, practitioner, if you can engage a positivistic science. And here's what we know through that domain. We know all of these, and these are the things we are experts in. We love anatomy, physiology, pathology. We know everything that is to know about how to assess for well, almost everything, how to assess and treat uh, hearing pathologies. And, and that's where our expertise lies. But the question is whether that understanding is something we want to remain with. So this slide here is an expansion of what we spoke about earlier on where we're looking at the fact that an empirical or positivistic science is something that's really the major focus of what we do, which means we focus on the body. We've got a strong biomedical uh, focus. It's minor focus, and granted this has been so in the last few decades, it is is an incursion into understanding the ear and hearing uh, within a social, cultural, economic dimensions or domains. So there there are ways in which lived experiences, um, the the social realities of, uh, for example, hearing loss within say, poorer communities or so-called majority world populations have been investigated but it's not the main business of what we do. We we still focus very much on the, the biomedical um, domain. These are other key things that we love to do well. So we're all about being able to explain and predict and do things uh, through that kind of fo- uh, way of understanding yeah, and hearing. We, we constantly seeking causal effect relationships. Um, we want to know how these things occur so that we can uh, predict what's going to happen to treat it. We generalize um, usually the knowledge we get through, for example, uh, in this, uh, how we understand occupational hearing loss as an example. And then we, we, we value things like hypotheses, verification. We set out to investigate the nature of a law and whether that's going to be as it is we plan. And then we go further into that. This is what really intrigues us. And throughout those domains, the ones that we spoke about earlier on, those three there, power distribution is, is what I'm, I'm asking us to think about when we're looking at how hearing healthcare researchers and practitioners do their business when you're looking at an empirical, analytical, or positivistic framework, it's the practitioner or the researcher that's in charge. That person is the one who is, the buck stops there. Uh, In terms of the other frameworks, you can see that power is more more equitably distributed within the hermeneutic or the constructivist um, paradigm, whereas within the critical paradigm, it seeks to analyze or uncover the nature of power and the relationships and what happens in terms of um, power and, and people with hearing uh, impairments, etc. So, what it does essentially is it takes, it focuses the lens on the ear, the empirical paradigm, and strips the whole person away from the ear. So, we we're looking at if we are to focus the ear and the person. Together, if we had to really make this one unit of understanding, what would happen then? I'm going to ask Impilo to um, talk about the rest of what we've got in this uh, presentation, and we'll come. I'll come back shortly. Thank you,
3: <laughs> thank you, thank you, Machine so, so basically, what uh, becomes uh, uh, interesting is what mission has already I- I indicated that there is this form of elimination of the human uh, from the from the uh, from the the whole practice that the the, the human doesn't really find space. Or whatever finds space is the biological and the, the the organ itself, and we all know and we do understand that we are actually uh, working with people who just happen to have ears, not actually ears who just that just happen to be on humans. So that's the whole idea of what socio sonic is, so that our solutions are more. Uh, uh, um, uh, 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 grounded on the people that are, are actually uh, uh, experiencing the, the the condition, and then we the as we move along, then we it then uh, uh, allow this actually of uh, situation allows. As, as professionals to really unsee uh, some of the messiness that really are, is inherent in terms of if we to think of, for example, a worker where I am a professional in, in an occupational space. So these issues like multiple exposures to different uh, um, uh, um, factors that could affect uh, um, uh, 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 hearing, we tend to then look at what uh, noise and maybe solvents and we leave out all the other uh, cultural or uh, co-occurring core, 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 core um, uh, sort of uh, exposures uh, outside the kind of work environment. So that basically becomes the, the main issue when we are discussing the sociosonic uh, approach to hearing uh, healthcare. So for example, other like physical space and medication and all that, that's the, whole mess that we find uh, 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 within the, 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 the place where we practice. And if we think of our approach using the mainstream approach, it then finds uh, some sort of a disjuncture in that kind of space. And it really challenges you to uh, 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 or pushes you away uh, if you are interested in actually understanding the space more than you are understanding just the organ itself. So I think I'll get I'll give over to Machine at this point.
2: Okay. And uh what this slide is doing is saying that when we start looking at the chaos and we start looking at all of these multiple variables, these factors that we we want to, to, to see, our science limits us because our science, the dominant science, engages the form of reductionism. As mentioned earlier, it takes a whole phenomenon and reduces it to, to little bits. It also uses essentialism. So we speak about the cochlear implant child, or we speak about the adult with the hearing loss, or we we talk through all of these um, essentialist ways of defining and describing people and their hearing. And then the one that's critical, which we are really able at doing, uh, we do very well, is that through a process of disrespecting, we dis other people. So we take a whole complicated, complex person with good things and bad things and everything else, and we only throw them within a deficit framework through our specialist focus, through the biological reliance on the body as the way in which we can understand ear and hearing. So through all of these processes here, we create this um, the person with the hearing loss, which may not be the kind of view or the lens that enables us to understand the bigger wider world as we want to understand it. Um, so whether our science matches the real world factors is dubious. We, we don't think it does. OK, um, I'm going to hand over to Mpilo to talk a little bit more around this after I just introduced to you this broad framework. Myself and uh, Warren and a few other people on this this call were involved in developing uh, what we refer to as a so- sociosonic program, essentially looking at street traders who were music traders in a busy market in Durban in South Africa. And these are the traditional things we looked at. And I'm not going to go into much detail other than point out to you that while this framework consists of classic components of hearing conservation, like the environmental noise and worker management, etc., we positioned this within the fact that this is a low-middle-income country, resource constraints, but specifically, we looked at it within a decoloniality framework and the need to humanize workers, the need to take the person in this whole framework and position them flat center of what it is we were doing. And, and Pila will talk about this shortly.
3: Okay. So now, if we now we we're looking at them uh, at the worker uh, themselves, for example, we then tend to, if you can move uh, on, um, machine. Yes. Yeah. We tend to then, uh, like machine indicated, we can tend to. In essentialize our approach just to be around what we are able or we think is manageable around the sound and the solvent. However, there are these other existing uh, factors or existing issues that are that come with the worker into that workspace, and if and without looking at at those at, 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 um, or with act by act by applying the science, we actively. Um, uh, dis- disregard uh, um, all these uh, 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 complexes and chaos that that is brought with by the by the worker. So in that way, we tend to then limit our 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 activity or our practice within a, a very um, a narrow approach, and all the other chaos that links to how the worker actually. Uh, um, uh, 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 the exposure uh, the, the concept and the understanding of worker exposure becomes very much limited to what we think and we believe is uh, is essential uh, for that context so that's basically the issue that we want to uh, uh, elaborate here
2: In terms of this 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 um, summarizing slide helps us define a little bit around what we mean by sociosonic and we're hoping to get more into the discussion shortly um but i'm going to leave this in your your heads to think about uh, as we talk through in our discussion shortly so sociosonic being something that maps a multifaceted economy of sound and that really that hearing health care should be understood as a decolonizing activity that essentially connects people by just in boundaries of otherness. And I'm going to leave those um, words in your head as we enter the discussion shortly. But before we do that, I realize, Impilo, you didn't introduce yourself. Maybe just a line or two about uh, where you're from, what you, where you're at.
3: OK, yes, I'm Impilo. I work as an uh, audiologist lecturer at the University of Pretoria in South Africa.
2: Now over to Hasha.
1: Motion, mm-hmm. <laughs> Impilo, that was an earful. <laughs> So a lot to take in, uh, I think, critical concepts. So maybe just to open up the discussion, I think what you're challenging us is with a changing practice and maybe for everyone uh, in the room to just talk about what that means from where you are. How are you shifting practices, what you see as important, how are you humanizing, decolonizing, and perhaps engaging in a critical
4: sense can can i can i go first
2: yes can
4: you? Uh, my name's uh, ravi reddy and uh i'm uh, very happy to talk on this subject uh with my colleagues and the listeners uh the uh, it was good listening to mission and impilo talk about i i guess deconstructing current systems and practices i i'd like to think of it as for example when you look at the uh, hearing healthcare access, and you look at the barriers, there are three barriers, structural, meaning how uh, the models of hearing care is set up, uh, resources, the capacity, delivery uh, modes, and is it fit for purpose? The other thing to look at is the financial barriers. So can people actually afford to get to the service in the first place? And then secondly, once they're in, can they afford the services that have been provided? And then there's this long-term sustenance of uh, services, and the, the final one I was thinking about, which I think is very important to this subject, is the cognitive side of things, where it will vary between context, geographical spaces, cultures, um, traditions, um, uh, the spirituality. So these things will affect, I guess, beliefs, attitudes, the knowledge base around, um, should I get hearing care Have my ancestors been using hearing services? I mean, personally, I'm from Fiji. We never had any audiologists out there. Um, It was something like uh, radiographers were thought to be people who repaired radios. And then, because we used to know them as X, X-ray people, right? So so I'm sure if audiologists were introduced back then, there would be some, something to do with the audio sound system. Uh, jokes aside, but I'm just trying to give that example to put things into context where it will differ in areas between cultures, between traditions, between languages. Similarly... If you take, you flip this and put it in an occupational setting, I think those three structures again uh, come to the fore. When you look at structures, the structural barriers, those would be around policies at the government level. Uh, then you'll have the organizational level, the companies, uh, how they run things. And uh, uh, I think my friends Warren and Pilo and David would agree that in occupational settings, noise, the extent of noise is wearing earmuffs or giving earplugs. But I guess in the context of it, it runs far deeper than that. When you look at uh, financial costs, obviously, how much is is it going to cost the organization? But then on the flip side, how much is it going to cost the worker in the long run? So a social cost, financial cost, and the people cost. And then finally, the cognition again comes in. So the attitudes of both the organization and the workers. And just to sum all of this up, my final, I think, uh, argument here is that all of this can be framed into what Mershon said earlier around power distribution. So all of these financial structures, cognition, and access to either services or help promotion in occupational settings uh, could be one, the political will. Because if it's not there, it's not there. And we we will continue to do things as we have done, expecting change but without changes. And then you have the organizational control. Yes, we are invested into programs, but uh, we invest into flyers, and that's about the extent of our health promotion. Uh, And we'll tell you what to do, we have done our training. And at the individual level, it is about choices, but also the lack of choices. So you can't say to employees that we give them hearing protection, Yes, you can give them a class five earmuffs, but they may need class two earmuffs. They might require earplugs. Some people are sensitive, but if you have this one size fits all, you're just uh, ticking uh, boxes. Uh, and that was leading on to my other statement about informed choices. So giving the, um, I guess, the respect that they can make those informed choices rather than... Uh, shoving it down their throats that they need to do something that they're not invested in. And all of this, I think, finally leads into um, what we are talking about is equity, equity in the sense of uh, is is everything that is supposed to be available, available but also available in a timely manner. But um, those were my, I guess, rounded thoughts around it. Uh, David, Ale, Warren Impilo might want to comment on it. Was, that was very well said,
5: Ravi. By golly, and what, what, I was just thinking, um, in your in your last slide mention, you, you used the phrase "economics of sound." I think you put on that that little phrase. How did that relate to what Ravi was just talking about? Because I think Ravi summarised my understanding of that really beautifully. Is that kind of where you were thinking, or did you go beyond that?
2: So I think that's the economy of sound. And, and yes, it could be both the economy as we understand it through financial or fiscal means, but also the political economy of sound. So noise has always been understood as noise, which is the sound of the other. Uh, and so so you know, in terms of looking at that, um, noise is quite a political con- concept. And in the specific example that we were talking about with street traders, we were looking at how um workers who had no other means of generating income for themselves turn to their own so they self-employed and engage working in contexts that were not necessarily healthy for them so working in a roadside market uh, exposed to car fumes listening to very loud music and a whole range of other what one would refer to if this was in a uh, considered a formal work environment would, would be seen as hazardous work conditions and so so, sound interconnected with all of that, then uh, is something that is, and especially within an informal sector environment, is seen as something that you know states generally won't get involved with this uh, in, in in the same way as they would in in a formal sector. So, the the economy of of sound is specifically related to who and how the sound is generated, specifically within how. Uh, Populations like like the ones we worked with in South Africa, uh, Black African predominantly, were positioned uh, and made powerless by the situation uh, through a whole system, historical and other, that generated that. So it's, it's that sort of uh, thinking. I hope that isn't too complex. But I'm gonna ask Warren to add to that a bit because you've got a particularly interesting view. Thank you, Warren, on um, on, on the law. Uh,
6: yeah. Uh, thanks, Merchant, and. Uh, um... Uh, Ravi just uh, set me up very well there. Um, uh, For example, in occupational context, um, occupational health and safety is regarded as, uh, is, is, is taken for granted as one Practice one type of practice, and a big part of my current work is highlighting the fact that there are many types of uh, occupational health and safety, and there's a predominant type which I call corporate occupational health and safety, which is which is which is codified in 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 our law and our policies, and so forth. And then there's an alternate, which I'm putting forward, which is rights-based occupational health and safety. So in terms of the epistemology and the ontological aspects of it, the, uh, the dominant form of occupational health and safety centers uh, the deconstruction of the person and the devaluation of workers, their knowledge, their beings, you know, and, and it uh, empowers, uh, you know, corporate uh, the corporate hand even further in its control of, of working people as they are defined within the Within the law, so uh, occupational health and safety has this obvious ethical value, you know, unchallenged. So there's this moralization of the employer as what the reasonable man. You know, the reasonable man does the good thing, and then the workers are the ones that are the weak link, do all the unhealthy, dangerous things, and they bizarrely hurt themselves and make themselves sick. So um, this is what I'm focusing on, is the as a corporate occupation, health, and safety. And again, uh, contrasting that to rights-based occupation, health, and safety, that, for one, says occupation, health, and safety is a service. And that the workers are the the client of the service and also the workers knowledge about uh, themselves and their work environments and their living experience is central to the development of the service workers and the clients are co-creators of the service and this is a very important thing for us to really shift to is that we're providing services we want to engage uh, you know uh, to unserviced communities but we must see them as co-creators of the service or else we fall into an old culture of coming with something, and and I mean and and then we have to question whether we're really moving away, or whether we're we so deep in a culture that we don't even actually see that we sort of just maybe um, coming with it in a slightly different form. So the 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 the, the, the in from particularly from an occupational health and safety perspective, we for me seeing it as a service seeing the knowledge of people must be centered seeing the the, the the role the democratic role of people in um managing their lives their working lives their lived experience become central in the, in, in in this decolonization project uh, because people are not defined as as, as empowered uh, their human dignity is like Ravi was saying that right to, you know informed uh, consent. That relates to human dignity. And if we define people in our law as not having the obvious not having the right to choose different medical procedures or products that are put on or in their bodies, then we've got a serious uh, blind spot um, for me that focusing on these things as services which are co-created between uh, uh, everybody involved tries to address that. Thanks, Marjan. Thanks, friend.
1: I wonder if Ali can maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the idea of being human and what it means from an indigenous perspective um, in health and hearing health care
7: yeah thanks Sasha yeah I just want to say I completely agree with what Warren had just said we really need to centralize Indigenous ways of knowing and our thoughts and our paradigms and currently it's it's, it's not about you know rejecting all theory or Western theory or Western knowledge but it's really de-linking Eurocentric thought and moving beyond Indigenous. You know, beyond indigenous perspectives on Western paradigms, and towards a space where indigenous thoughts are within indigenous paradigms. So, um, yeah, I'm really, I've been really, I've been in the background clapping my hands um, to what everybody's been saying in this, um, because it's been a long time to, since we've been able to, you know, talk about this stuff and um look into challenging the locus of power and control that's currently there um and how we can move beyond that and so at the moment for um, Māori here from from my own PhD research looking into experiences of hearing loss among our Indigenous elders here in New Zealand um, they they speak of wanting to be able to hear they they really like the hearing technology, but they're not getting uh, follow-up services. They're not getting the maintenance of services and um, they're not getting the services that, that that their family needs as well. So it's very individual-centered care and they're looking towards family far no centered care. But at the moment, it's just that individual-based care that they're really getting and they're not getting follow-ups either. So there are barriers there Um, and I think at the moment we're really looking in towards a needs-based approach but for Indigenous peoples we have documents there to to claim that we have rights to these services, we have the rights to hearing health and air health Um, but it's just not going that way at the moment. Um, So yeah at the moment there's a lot of otherness disothering happening Um, and I I don't speak for all Maori here Um, You know, there's essentialism there, I can't provide a perspective for all Māori but from those who I have spoken to that there are sorry my partner's in the background he's playing games (laughs) Um, so you may hear him as well Um, yeah so just a lot of um all happening which is uh speaking happening at the moment that we all really need to have and understanding uh what hearing loss is what tinnitus is what services look like for Māori um, and other indigenous peoples around the world
1: uh, just out of curiosity, um how do the the elderly Maori people engage with the idea of hearing loss? So is it through a pathology lens like you know how how do they yeah, what understanding are you getting through your study or visits this is?
7: Yeah, it's not necessarily pathology based. Um, I think a lot of the time they speak of not being able to hear their mokopuna, which is the youngest children and grandchildren, um, not being able to hear a lot of things that they used to be able to hear. So thinking about it uh, from a broader perspective, um, <laughs> not being able to hear the water or being able to navigate the world in the, in the way that they used to, uh, as opposed to um, pathology-based, oh, my, my ear's blocked, or um, for this specific reason. Or, uh, it's it's more uh, thinking about how's it <coughs> impacting their life and quality of life.
5: Could I just um, take what you're saying there, Ale, and, and just uh, talk about some, some research that we did, which. Um, showed that that people don't even know that they their ears really they don't think about their ears so you you when you interview people about their experience of the sound world they they can they can talk about the emotions that sounds instill in them and they can talk about the the qualities of the sound you know it was a beautiful sound or whatever but they don't, they actually say that, that, that even though they know intellectually, they know that it goes through their ears, they don't think about their ears until you actually start making them and talking to them about it. It's, uh, it's yeah. fascinating. It's a, it's a real challenge for all hearing, I suppose, related healthcare, is to try and encourage people to realize that their ears are, are actually part of the process.
7: Yeah, as I speak to some of the Māori elders, they also speak about not being able to process and things just, uh, as well as they could older. be. Yeah. So they're, they're connecting thing. all this pathology, pathological stuff, but um, that's usually the last thing um, that they're, they're thinking of in the process. Yeah. It's really interesting, David. Yeah. Warren,
1: can I maybe get back to some of what you said and Ravi as well? Uh, And I think we're all saying that, you know, it's such a deeply entrenched system. So how do you shift a practice in in this kind of system where, you know, workers are devalued, dehumanized, um, and and really think about how we can practice differently? Impido, maybe you want to go first. Yes,
3: So um, one of the key things that um, we, uh, when I was in the occupational health space uh, in my previous life was to look at issues related to behavior change, issues related to worker empowerment and issues related to um, uh, 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 workers agency in, 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 in participation within the processes of, 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 of of um, uh, hearing conservation, however, the 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 whole lens and uh, or I would say the structure still remained owned, and the the, the 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 driver of the of the structure still remained owned and situated or located within the corporate or the the the, the, the employer. So um, uh, I mean, I think I thought that was the beginning to 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 recognize the understanding, like what um, David says, uh, uh, that the, um, the 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 social nature and the political nature of the sound. For example, in a space in a context like South Africa, where migration uh, um, uh, um, or labor migration is a very real thing, and when you come to across uh, um, uh, uh, people who are coming from different parts of, of the country, and now they have to have this uniform understanding of what noise is and why noise is dangerous for them. It becomes a really difficult concept because now they, they, they have these other uh, other issues that they come with, and noise <clears throat> for them or the idea that they can be in danger because of the work that they are doing. It's really something difficult or different for them to actually engage uh, with. And now, when you then strip away the agency out of their own agency out of it, you then disempower them and you allow uh, um, even the the little uh, uh, um, uh, ability to positively engage with them, you just remove it and then, now it becomes part of the process, routine. And they just come into the uh, clinic. When I would be sitting there, they would come into the clinic. It's just part of me. Press, press, press the button. And I just uh, educate them about it And then they leave. And there's nothing about how that engages uh, uh, them beyond what they are doing and, and to actually involve them in who they are. So that's uh, where the, I think the shift could help us begin into understanding that who are you, where are you, what are you, what are you, you are here to work, yes, but this is, uh, this space is also part of who you are. And this is where you are also building your, 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 your whatever, who you are, your being also exists within the space. Okay.
2: Before Warren responds, I wanted to just quickly add something to what Mpilo was saying. There's a, And audiology, it's been so technologically focused, uses technology as the answer to treat the problem. And I think therein lies the biggest issue we have with uh, hearing healthcare in general is that the man maketh the machine, the machine maketh the man. And I'm using that in exactly the same gendered reference as I wanted to come out in that way because that's exactly how uh, hearing healthcare has been constructed. Um, And so the challenge is, is, can we deliver audiological hearing health services without machines? Yep. What would we do without our audiometer, for example? Uh, and is hearing healthcare care possible in other ways? So just to follow that up, because I really think the technological focus is distracting from the humanizing. Uh,
1: I also just want to add to that before we get back to Warren. Um, for uh, for thinking about uh, people and the agency and and who the worker is you know worker identity against the backdrop of a of a long history of coloniality um, you know the worker as non being is almost the starting point so so in a way we we assuming that the worker is a human being and yet our history says the person hasn't been acknowledged as a human being. So I'm interested in, you know, how do you take a rights-based approach when the human being in a way doesn't exist or is still coming into being and, and, you know, kind of a historical challenge that we have?
6: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, It's a big challenge. Personally, I've been working with a uh, one of the large uh, international labor federations trying to um, shift their understanding of occupational health and safety uh, to a rights, because they have internalized the corporate understanding with things like risk assessments. I'm sorry, guys, I'm a bit extreme, but I'm sort of anti-risk assessments as well, because, again, it's it plays into the technology. Um, the discourse of the corporate world, you know, it brings in models of probabilities and stuff like that, which are financial uh, models, you know, that uh, that play to their strength. You know, you're playing on their wickets, so to speak. So I've been working with the big international federation, trying to develop their understanding of a rights-based approach so that when they are engaging uh, with governments at the ILO or with the, uh, industrial sectors signing agreements, um, they start bringing in this language of Occupational Health and Safety is a service. And what the client says is always correct. Apparently, in terms of uh, you know the corporate world, the, what the client asks for is, is always correct. So we're, gonna, we're saying that uh, Occupational Health and Safety is owned by workers. It's part of their enumeration. It's not a charity. They, they pay for their services by their labor. And when they don't receive their services, it's actually exploitation. You know, I mean, there's no exploitation without poor occupation, health, and safety. You know, it goes hand in glove. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a characteristic of exploitative work environments, not just long work hours and poor wages, it's also unhealthy and unsafe work environments. So just personally, that's the angle I'm taking as uh, uh, one person sitting uh, you know, in Durban working with a, a big international federation to shift their thinking so that when they're engaging with the employer they're asking these different questions about the occupational health and safety practice in those companies in those sectors. Uh, there's a whole other issue around legislation and the, and the invisibility of workers. Even though one of the key uh, institutions in Occupational Health and Safety is uh, the Health and Safety Committee. I don't know how you know strong these committees actually are, how deep the actual democratic practices, I can make assumptions based on my, exp- my personal experience around that. So um, the discourse of uh, Occupational Health and Safety as a service challenging the dominant uh, for grantedness of occupational health and safety is what I'm really working on. That it's not automatically good just because it is the current dominant practice. So that's as far as I'm nibbling at it in my, mm-hmm. my, my personal capacity.
1: So Ravi, how are you engaging that uh, dominant practice and, and trying to shift?
4: Yeah, I have to um, agree with Warren. That uh, I think the initial question was how do we kind of look forward and make changes, and see how, uh, uh, in order for things to change, and in order to that happen, for that to happen, one uh, very aptly put that we need to challenge probably the status quo or the current practices. Not challenge in the sense of let's burn it down, but ask questions. Hey, um, can we do it some other way? Is there any? are the better way of doing things? I think when we use the word challenge, people think you're going to kill it. We're not going to kill it. We're trying to evaluate it. Uh, I was thinking of uh, untangling the law and standards from occupational health and safety. I use the word untangling and not disconnecting. So when you start to challenge it, people think you're going to disconnect it. Well, the legislation is always going to be there, but currently the system is set up that the legislations are the gold standard. So, we are constantly ticking check boxes. And then, as I, I like to example. Say again? Harsha? Oh, I'll continue. Um, and Warren, you said about risk assessment. That was a very good point. Now, David, myself, and a few other colleagues, we're currently thinking about a project where we're looking at this uh, this uh, this thing that you talked about, risk assessment, if it's done by employers, you're taking the power away from the workers. Why can't the workers also do a risk assessment based on their own understanding, knowledge, attitudes, beliefs of the hazards and risks in the workplace? And then you try to kind of balance them or look at them parallel with how organisations have set them up. But that doesn't happen. But if it happens, that would be, a I guess, gives, would give a... More true picture of risk in occupational settings because that's where the workers are owning it and that's where the noise factor would come in. So, if the workers are thinking, Well, we have noise, but it's not that high, and the uh, but if I do get hearing loss, the consequences are going to be moderate to severe. The employers might say, Well, we have m- managed noise, the likelihood of hearing loss is going to be low, and in that low likelihood, if one out of 100 workers do get hearing loss, we can manage it. So it really comes down at the low end of the scale. But then if you have the workers at the moderate or severe end of the scale, there is something very wrong with the system. Um, Yeah, those were my thoughts around. I think it's, again, I don't know, David, is there a better word instead of challenge? What is it, discourse?
5: (laughs) I don't okay. know I think you said it nicely disentangle that's not a bad way to put it well <laughs> it's, it's interesting because one of the things we know we notice is you know quite often the workers themselves are quite resistant to things that are for their for their good right they 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 don't like being pushed around by these health and safety people and so what ravi's talking about of trying to help the workers to take some more control of it to do to to assess the risks themselves and to that that sort of thing makes people engaged and not feel alienated by the the system that there's some guy with a clipboard comes around and tells me I have to wear earmuffs, but I don't want to. That's quite different from thinking about it yourself and then deciding, OK, well, maybe I'll wear, you know, maybe I'll protect myself. Maybe I will do this. So I, I don't know if I answered your question really, Ravi, but I think I agree with what you and Warren have both been saying, it. so it's important to get the people involved, always.
2: I just want to quickly allude to this disentanglement you're speaking about, Ravi, at a broader scale, and specifically, I suppose, because this is World Hearing Day, looking at the relationship between the big financial uh, organizations like the ILO, so the Labour Organization, World Trade Organization, and the World Bank as what I think Richard Peet calls it, the unholy trinity, uh, because of the way in which, um, especially countries in the colonized or majority world uh, sectors, so people across um, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, et cetera, because of the way in which colonization has impacted on their economies, their lives, hearing, education, healthcare, and specifically what happens in the employment to the labor sector is very much influenced with trade-offs by these governments, by multinational companies and so forth. And I think this big picture is very important to keep in mind, because when you're looking at World Health Organization and days like this, we see a silence of how those organizations are managed between policies to do with world, uh, for example, World Hearing Day. Where's the discourse around that? Where's the the bigger picture around how these organizations are really not working for the people they need to be working for?
6: Just a small addition. Um, I I, um, I tend to look at uh, the law as a technology. And um, so it, it, it helps to devalue it. Because we overvalue the law, in fact, so it becomes like you know uh, something from uh, it's sacred, you know. Um, so we need. Uh, I, I like to uh, make this discussion around the law as a technology. It's like it's like uh, applied mathematics. It's like physics. It's like all other forms of technology, and it and it actually carries a particular kind of. Dominant culture in, in the way it uh, subjectivizes uh, P, U, uh, workers. Uh, you know, it carries these uh, uh, these assumptions about what people are and and and, and what they're capable of doing and, and all this kind of stuff. And of course, um, corporate occupational health and safety is a policing function and a discipline discipline function. And it's it it explains why workers actually don't like occupational health and safety uh, mm-hmm. officers. And when you discuss with them, it's it's an outcome of the of the corporate model, you know that that uh, that is rules based and uh, enforcement, uh, you know driven uh, non-compliances and all this kind of stuff. And then of course, so shifting it to to use uh, indicators and measurement tools that focus on service delivery on the on the on the participation of, of workers in the decision making uh you know in the planning and the valuation, all of that then that's how I'm trying to uh, suggest that we could challenge the the, the dominant uh, I, couldn't,
4: I couldn't agree more Warren I, I I like to call it the criminality of occupational health and safety so it's like if you do happen to by some way or another not, conform to any of the standards or the rules or the policies, there is a crime, because it is an act that has been um, um, uh, contravened.
6: Robby, <laughs> you know, do you know some sites actually have cages for workers? Do you know that some sites have cages? <laughs> I, I, they put I've read
4: about them, yeah. hmm. They actually do. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think we need to move away from that, eh? It's interesting. It goes
5: beyond, if you think about it, it, I mean, I completely agree with what you both say. It goes beyond just occupational health as well, right? There's a, in a sense, a kind of implied criminality in the whole of public health. If you, uh, we, we're all sort of supposed to stay inside because of this COVID thing at the moment. And and if you go outside, you've broken the, the rules. And in fact, if you don't seek treatment for some health problem that you've been diagnosed with, you're kind of, you get eyebrows raised at you, and people people look at you funny, like you, you've done something wrong. So it's absolutely what you say, Warren, but it's, I think it's probably even bigger. It's part of the whole system, isn't it?
1: Ali, maybe you want to just add in there from you know an indigenous perspective, um, how you see you know the participation of people who have been marginalized in shaping a different system.
7: Yeah, I think often in Aotearoa, we we often speak of Te Tiriti o Waitangi, which is our founding document, and within that there are three articles, and so we speak of Te Rangatiratanga, which is self-determination, there's governance, which is kawana-tanga, and there's also uh, Ori Tanga, which is equity. So those are the three main things that we look at, and if we think about that, that's a, what Warren's been speaking about, that's a rights-based approach that you know key stakeholders and the government really need to set indicators and targets for you know better for us to better meet the needs of, of Māori, as well as Pacific peoples as well who are marginalized here as well. Um, and so I think if we provide a space that Māori can have to self-determine these processes, these laws, these policies, then we we're, we're probably be will probably be able to provide a better hearing healthcare service, um, and that's what a lot of the the outers are saying within my own research. Yeah, so it's it's not an easy one. It, it will take a long time, but it's somewhere where we need to start. Um, and so, yeah, I think. We, we all need to build these relationships with our communities, not just with ourselves as researchers, as people within the practice, but we also need to work with our communities within this.
1: I think what has struck me is, you know, the for, for the professions, almost the occupational health and safety and audiology, it's really taking a look at, seriously questioning our dominant practice. Because if we don't know what that is, we're going to be part of the perpetuation of it. Uh, and in the name of good health care, in the name of uh, improving services, et cetera, we're actually going to replicate that. I think just listening to what 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 was coming through here, it's saying actually, please let's look at ourselves first, um, and and look at how those those kind of fundamentals have to change. So how we work through building relationships as opposed to replacing with technologies, whichever technologies we we currently using. So I think you know for for World Health Day, you know the messages are very clear that there's large scale systemic change that we need and that there's a collective that needs to work very hard with this. And it's really the undoing of ourselves in this process. But maybe as we end to just get takeaway points from you know, everything that we have heard and talked about. pillow Yeah, um, thank you. I think
6: that one of
3: the key things that um, uh, I would like to take away uh, is or is what you just mentioned the 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 look at ourselves in the way we practice to uh, identify um, uh, areas that are actually uh, uh, make us participate in the perpetual oppression of uh, our communities and uh, perpetual marginalization of our communities. Uh, for example, uh, I mean, if we think of um, what uh, uh, David said about the public health approach to to management of, of, of all of um, different uh, conditions. The, the issue has been, for example, for me is that uh, one of the important things that violence in our own communities is identified as one of the uh, of the burdens of disease. However, our profession as audiology and speech therapy tends to Uh, 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 sort of tiptoe around the idea of violence and uh, the question is is it because it exists within the communities where the practitioners do not really have uh, vested interest in because I mean uh, violence in South Africa for example exists within communities that are marginalised or peri-urban and rural and all that but mostly the practitioners in speech therapy and audiology are not um, uh, living in those areas, so they, because they can't relate to that. So they don't really think of violence <laughs> as, a, as a condition that needs to be addressed uh, directly. You know, they want to look at the deficits or the outcomes of violence, <laughs> and then that's where they actually come in. David.
6: Oh uh, well, I suppose
5: I think uh, you know trying to make people do things they don't want to do doesn't usually work very well. So trying trying to let people come to their own understanding of it and, and thinking about the things that Warren said and um, Ale said about how if you if you let people have their own understanding, then they do what they want to do, and and they'll you know if they if they understand the world in a good way that is their way of understanding it, then they'll, they'll follow that path and it'll make more sense to them so they'll, they'll do the, the right thing for them, which is, I think, a better way than trying to force someone else's way of thinking on someone which just makes them feel alienated and, and grumpy. And if they do do whatever it is you want them to do, they do it unhappily and and they don't do it as soon as someone stops watching them.
7: yeah i think mine's very similar to impelo um just really understanding our positioning and um, understanding what that is really reflecting and imagining our futures um and i think one thing that um, Linda Toiwai-Smith, who's an indigenous scholar here in New Zealand, she says, we need to have a confrontation with ourselves says that, um, and a confrontation with the, the coloniser. But also just thinking about my own sort of practices throughout my PhD research, I've had to look at my own positioning and what does that mean for me as a researcher, as an audiologist? You know, I've got insider and outsider boundaries. And so for me, it hasn't really been easy. Um, And so to the community, who, who who do they see me as? Do they see me as someone that's from here? outside or someone that's inside that's able to be able to speak to them about these things. So as we go forward with these things, who would be the best people to speak with our communities and bring this knowledge forward? so yeah, I think just stepping back, revisiting our history, what that looks like, um, centralising Indigenous thoughts as we've all talked about, um, challenging the, the, the locus of power and control, as well as understanding what our positioning is within all of that. So that's kind oh, that's of my takeaway. But yeah, thanks for today. It's been, it's been amazing.
1: Warren and Ravi, last words, takeaway messages.
6: Um, if I just uh, for me, um, if uh, democracy building is our biggest uh, primary uh, responsibility in all of our uh, personal or professional, like uh, you know, endeavors, uh, if we are not measuring uh, how we are building democracy, participative democracy, people's democracy, uh, we are not building health because people's health they create their own health. And if we're not, uh, you know, uh, developing a professional practice that uh, facilitates that, uh, you know, uh, then we're actually uh, just medicalizing people and um, we're not building health. We're not health workers and we must stop using those uh, those labels for ourselves because it's actually um, a little bit not honest. Uh, We have to build democracy. We can't undo the damage of the past, uh, but we will change uh, futures. Whether the bean counters can measure it—that's another problem. But we have to have indices where we measure our democracy building in our practice. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Warren Ravi.
2: Um,
4: yeah, very good discussion. There, many things that I actually didn't think about, but I was pretty much in line with some of my other left-field kind of thinking. Um, in terms of hearing, I, I, it goes back to, again, the power distribution. I was just thinking that uh, we have, I think we've constantly been saying that I think now more so we need to act it out, that we need to listen to individuals and communities and not just hear them. <laughs> yes, that's my final <laughs> point. Thanks. Thanks,
1: Ravi, And so, and I'll leave you with the final uh, point and then to close the session.
2: The science we use is or entirely wrong I think for the way we want to progress especially to just the issues that say what Warren's raised and what Ali has just spoken about as well and so everything from the fact that we use pure tones why uh, to the kind of speech uh, tests that we do when wanting to look at the effects of noise and, and people's listening etc there's so many problems with what we do that we take that we, we traditionally have valued as a gold standard of a practice that needs to be really really contested so i uh, challenges out there. I think when we look at another world here in day come up we want to be able to say we moved the way we, we, we address here in healthcare in a meaningful way and for me that's through the science, by shifting the science. And we'd like to engage more people in talking critically around here in healthcare. So feel free to email me and we will give you information on how to connect with that SIG. Thank you
1: everyone.
3: Thank you guys.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The Korero doesn't end here. Keep an ear out for more discussions on ear and hearing healthcare research with the Eyes Down Moore Centre. Thanks for listening and happy World Hearing Day. Matewa.